So we're going to be in Hebrews chapter 6. This is what we do here at the Parks Church. We preach through books of the Bible, and uh, we feel like the best way to enter into uh, the Advent season is by continuing in the book of Hebrews. And uh, we're going to be in Hebrews chapter 6 this morning. Uh, we're actually going to back up in Hebrews chapter 6. And uh, this has been planned, so this was not in a response to something, but this is, this is something that uh, we kind of had planned to do this, because in Hebrews chapter 6, there are some really, really deep waters in, in this. And so I'm only going to cover a handful of verses, verse 4 through verse 9. You go, wait a minute, Kyle, didn't you, didn't you already read those? Yes, I read them, but I told you that I was going to teach through them. And some of you I know were looking forward to Melchizedek because you read ahead, and you're like, wait, aren't we going to get to that? We're going to get to him next week, all right? Uh, but we're going to wade into some, some deeper waters here in Hebrews chapter 6. But as I've studied this over the last couple weeks, um, just how it coincides truly with the incarnation of Christ is a beautiful thing. And, um, and so to, to recap where we've been, uh, two weeks ago I taught on spiritual maturity, right? This is kind of the warning from the writer of Hebrews going, listen, uh, you guys should be teachers by now, talking to the, to the church there in Hebrews. You should be teachers by now, but you're still, you're still taking milk. It's kind of this call up, right, to spiritual maturity. And then last week, uh, Sam preached on the end of uh, chapter 6, which talked all about Jesus Christ being our anchor, right? This anchor that holds, and Sam used this beautiful picture of an upside-down anchor that holds fast in heaven and stretches all the way down to us, and, and the security that we can have, and the, it's, it literally says the full assurance that we can have that that anchor, it's not coming loose. Amen? That anchor holds fast beyond the veil. And so uh, this morning, I want to unpack what is held between those two. And so understanding the warning and the call of spiritual maturity and understanding that we have a steadfast anchor that we can have full assurance in, holding those two handles, we can actually deal with this text properly. Okay? Apart from that, it might get a little little squirrely because I'm just going to tell you, uh, this is a pretty controversial and sometimes confuse, confusing section of Scripture, all right? And so will you stand with me in the honor of reading God's Word, Hebrews chapter 6, verse 4. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift... And have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come. And then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, It is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. If there is one thing... I want to be sure about, it is my salvation, right? We should all be nodding our heads. If there's one thing I want to be certain of, it is that I have an eternity spent with God and not apart from him. You see, this is what the writer of Hebrews wants to drop in front of us this morning, 
And I'm going to lead with the punchline. He wants to lay before us again another warning. A warning of a, a dangerous presumption. What, what is made, what, what's made in this text, and this is really my first point, is that there is a dangerous presumption made by many who would say we are followers or disciples of Jesus Christ. There's a dangerous presumption. You see, the writer of Hebrews understands the, the fact and the ability that we all have. This uncanny ability to convince ourselves of something being true when it in fact is not true. You ever been guilty of that? Like you, you, you were convinced something was true. This is true. I know this is true. This is true. This is true. Like you could convince yourself that it was true and then come to find out, even if it's something silly, right? It was like, that wasn't true at all, right? Oh, I, I had worked something up in my mind, right? Or in my heart. You ever, you ever play the, the, the ball down the court, like hypothetically, right? And what happens? You always work up the worst case scenario, don't you, right? And then what happens? You live day after day after day and it's most oftentimes disprove, right? It, does, it doesn't occur. Well, in this case, what the writer of Hebrews is, is warning us in is he's going, listen, there is a dangerous presumption you can make about Jesus if you're not careful, about salvation, about true salvation. Now, now, now hear me. Um, Hebrews is a very serious book. If you haven't picked that up in, in the 20 weeks we've been walking through Hebrews, right? And some of you are like, wait, I brought family. Like, like, I'm just letting the cat out of the bag here. Like, this is a very serious book. What I just read is a very serious section within a very serious book. But you're sitting in a very serious church. Can I just tell you that? Like, we're serious about Jesus. We're serious about the gospel. We're serious about the gospel implication on our lives individually and corporately. One of the greatest compliments we got, uh, this is probably five or six years ago, Right? We, we met with, with this couple and uh, Sam and I, and uh, it just kind of, the, the conversation went where it went. And uh, at the end of it, they were just like, you guys are so serious. You're too serious about the gospel. And we're like, we kind of smiled. We're like, well, yeah, we are. We think if you're going to be serious about something, it should be the gospel. It should be the person and work of Jesus Christ in our lives. Now, what we're not serious about is ourselves, right? Like we don't take ourselves too seriously, but we want to take the gospel of Jesus Christ seriously. And so that's why even on this first Sunday of Advent, we would keep going through Hebrews and even back up into Hebrews and go, listen, we want to understand this. We don't want to look at the deep waters and the things of Christ and go, well, those are pretty deep. Why don't we stay back here, right? Ankle deep, because what happens? The beginning of Hebrews chapter 6 happens. It's going, listen, no, you guys should be wading into the deeper waters, into the meat, but you're still on the bottle. And so we have to go to these places. Why? Because one, we're serious about Jesus. We're serious about being faithful to him and what he really looks like in our lives. You see, the only evidence... Um, that you can rely on for proof of your salvation and my salvation is growth over time. I say this a lot, that the only proof or evidence that the Bible would lay out both in 1 John and also here in Hebrews chapter 6 is that it is faithfulness over time that proves that you're his. That your life is growing in an upward trajectory. You say, well, what speed? How fast? What does that trajectory look like? I don't know. It's different for everyone. 
but it's a growing maturity in Christ, a growing knowledge of who he is. You can't rely on walking an aisle. You can't rely on just praying a prayer. What you look at is your life today. Are you maturing in Christ? Are you growing more and more into his likeness? You see, what we have here in this section, verses 4 through 9, is a section just chalked full of religious experiences. Aisles walked, prayers prayed, experiences, religious experiences, maybe some of them true religious experiences. But the question is do those save? Do those save? And now, let me get a little bit to the controversy of this passage. The reason this passage is controversial is because we have to understand who the writer is talking to. So the controversy comes in the audience of this passage. If the audience of this passage is true believers, like the writer of Hebrews is talking to those who have put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, what it looks like he just said to them is this. That it, you can fall away from Jesus. In verse 4, it is impossible to come back to him. He's like, Kyle, where are you seeing that? Go to your Bible, right? Verse 4, for it is impossible. Those are the words out of the gate. It's talking about someone who has fallen away from the things of Christ. It's impossible for them to come back. Now, um, again, I want to lay out some options for you, Right? I'm not just going to tell you my opinion or my thought without laying out some options for you. I think that's disingenuous for someone to do that. So the question becomes, did these Christians, these Christians, just untie themselves from the anchor that Sam preached about last week? Did in some way their lives become severed from that immovable anchor that holds fast behind the veil? That's an option. Is this audience a group of people who presume they're saved, but actually aren't? And this is a warning to them. That this is the road, if they continue down the road that they are going, this is where it will ultimately end. And it gives us that in verse 8. Another option is that this is a, an audience who is, who is Christian, who are true Christ followers. And this is a warning to them. This is a warning to them to say, listen, your heart, your life should be completely oriented around Jesus. Do not fall away. We've seen that in Hebrews. Is this a hypothetical situation? Well, this just could be what happens. I don't think that's the case. And I want to lead again with where I land on this passage, and I will tell you why I land there. This section is not talking about true Christians. This section is not talking to true disciples who have repented and put their faith and trust truly in Jesus Christ. This is not giving them simply another warning. And my reason for thinking that is because he's already done that for them. He's done that before. You see, if they are truly saved, what this passage describes for true disciples, for true believers in Jesus Christ to fall away, to become severed or untethered from that immovable anchor is actually an impossibility. Someone who is truly saved, someone who has truly put their faith 
in Jesus Christ. It's, it's genuine, it's real. And I don't even have to leave the book of Hebrews to make that case. And I won't. I'll, I'll leave it only a couple of times. If this section of scripture means that you can lose your salvation, I don't know how to interpret the rest of Hebrews. Now hear me. This is important. And I, again, I told you, this is deep waters, right? Now this is also something, I want to be very clear, that is open-handed, Right? It's open-handed in the sense that can a believer in Jesus Christ believe that you can backslide or lose your salvation? Yes, you can. Can another person believe on the opposite side of that? Yes, you can, right? I'm I'm yielding that. I'm giving that. However, what I want to plead with you this morning is that if you fall into this group who believe that you can lose your salvation, that the implication of that in your life And in the way that you approach scripture, and listen, I say this not just from scripture, but I say this also from scripture and from experience, you will live a very paralyzed faith. You will live a faith that is timid and fearful. However, if you get a hold of the true assurance that's in the end of chapter six, the full assurance that Christ brings to us, we will live with that boldness and with that power, with that, with that beauty and joy that Christ provides to us. However, some of you are going, yeah, that's where I am. However, there are still these moments, and Paul says it over and over in his letters, examine yourself. Oh, don't be fooled. And that's where I'm talking about this dangerous presumption, Right? This dangerous presumption, and, and, and let me back up here just a little bit in talking about because I, I know I, I've just ruffled some feathers um, on the idea that that you you, you can't lose um, the uh, your, your salvation or that you could be in some way untethered from this anchor. Um, we believe here at, at the parks in something called the full plenary inspiration of Scripture. Fancy words, just meaning. We believe that every word is inspired and breathed out by God. Every word, every verb tense, every nuance, it was breathed out by God, right? And by the way, the Bible wasn't written in English, okay? Right? Hebrew and Greek primarily. And we come to places in Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 14, right? And this is the context. Hebrews 3, verse 14. For we, now this is talking to true believers, For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold fast, hold our original confidence firm until the end. Now, if this is something, if if, if our salvation is something that I can lose, if I can become untethered to that anchor that holds fast, then I've got a problem with that verse. That verse also just told me that what is the proof of our salvation? That we hold firm until the when? The end. Faithfulness over time is the evidence, proof of true, genuine salvation. Every single word matters. Hebrews chapter 10, which we'll get to in about two and a half years, um, says this. Look at it. Verse 14. For by a single offering, he, that's Jesus, has perfected for how long? All time, all time, those who are being sanctified. 
Okay, so he has perfected for what time? All time. The whole duration. Those who are being sanctified. The word sanctified means those who are being made more and more into the image of Christ. So if I can, if I fall into this group who believe that I can some way backslide out of salvation or become untethered from the anchor of Christ, I just said that I can be perfected, unperfected, and then be re-perfected. That's not what Hebrews 10 says. And in fact, if you fall into that position or that camp, go back to verse 4. And this is why Hebrews should really kind of begin you down the journey, as it did me several years ago, of really looking at this idea. It says, for it is impossible. It's impossible. So if the idea here, if the idea is you can become untethered from that unshakable anchor... Hebrews just said it's impossible to come back. It's impossible. And what the word of God in Hebrews and other places in Romans 8 and 9 and Ephesians and Colossians would say is no. Someone who has truly come to a saving faith in Jesus Christ, they are secure. As Hebrews 6 would say, there is to be full assurance of that salvation. That you are being perfected. You are being made new all the time, forever, always. Now, are there moments where we take detours? Maybe in your life, not mine, right? No, come on, absolutely, right? Unfortunately, if you will, to keep the anchor analogy going, right? If I'm, if I'm roped or tethered to that, sometimes there's a little lag in that rope, isn't there? And we go out. Hmm, Wait a minute. You remember six weeks ago, the warning in Hebrews? What was the warning in Hebrews? Don't, what? Drift. Don't drift. Don't drift out here. Don't drift over there. Why? Because the author of Hebrews understands the pain that happens in our lives, even as believers, as we begin to drift. Even as we begin to float. And that's, like, so many of you are nodding your head going, yes, I've been there. Right? And what is it as you come back, as you come back, as you repent and come back under Christ in those moments, what do you tell other people? You're like, listen, follow my lead and don't drift. Oh, don't, don't come out from underneath his wing. Don't come under, uh, out from underneath the joy and the, and, and, and the absolute blessing that comes from following Jesus wholeheartedly. Did you become untethered from the anchor? No. The anchor always held you fast and was pulling you and calling you back to himself. Isn't that beautiful? Like, isn't that just such a sweet gift that that's who our God is? A God who chases us down, a God who runs after us, and when he gets us, he keeps us. He holds us fast. And so here's the dangerous presumption in verses four through six. These are, in particular in verses 4 and 5, as I've mentioned, these describe incredible religious experiences. Did you hear some of these? In the case of those who have once been enlightened, that sounds powerful. Those who have tasted the heavenly gift, shared in the Holy Spirit, have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the ages to come. going, listen, there are some of you who have walked in those spaces, in those places. Enlightened. Does enlightened mean 
that they were saved? Remember, every word. John chapter 1, verse 9. This is how it ties in, even with Advent. Listen, this is how it describes that first Advent. Look at it here. The true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. This is the first Advent. And it was just described right as Jesus coming in, the true light of the world. And what does he do when he comes into the world? It enlightens who? Everyone. So therefore, right? You're either saying everyone is saved because everyone's enlightened or that the effect of the true light is felt by absolutely everyone. And that is the case. That the first advent had unbelievable ramifications on every single person in all of humanity for all of time. No one's exempt from that. Not one person can escape the light of the gospel breaking forth in Jesus Christ. However, just because someone is enlightened or exposed to that light does not mean that they are saved. So here's what Hebrews is saying, is that there are people who experience the light of Christ, who see him and see his power, see his demonstration, see his salvation, maybe in others, yet it is absent in them. It is not a true light in their life. It doesn't make any difference. You say the evidence there is that it doesn't make any difference. But it goes on to say, listen, they've tasted the heavenly gift and shared in the Holy Spirit. What? They've shared in the experience of the Holy Spirit. In no way does this text mean that they have the Holy Spirit in them. It means that they have shared in the experiences of the things of God. They've tasted, listen to this one. They have tasted the good word of God. That's verse 5. That people have been exposed to the good word of God. Listen, there are churches full today of people hearing the good word of God go forth. The gospel of Jesus Christ go forth. They're applauding it. They're lifting their hands in worship. But it is not transforming or changing their life. We go back to the seriousness of Jesus. They're okay with just experiencing Jesus right here. But when you begin to look at their lives, the fruit of their lives, the growing maturity in their lives, there is no evidence. And the dangerous presumption is this, that you can be around the things of God. You can be around religious experiences. You can get, you know, the quiver in your liver, right? The shake in your spine. But it is not what saves you. Miracles don't save you. Jesus healed and healed and healed. And people still at the end of his life said what? Crucify him. Signs don't save. Miracles don't save. Religious experiences don't save. And that is what the author of Hebrews is warning. Oh, goodness. I think even in this season, we're going to walk out of our... How cool is this, first of all? But, like, it's also kind of frightening. We're going to walk out of our building that we just gathered in to a carnival, right? With lights and all the frills and peace and love and joy. joy. But there's going to be so... The absence, the void, Right? Even in some of your lives, our lives are going to be there still. In a season that can just numb and pacify us and entertain us without us ever pausing, going, wait, is this real? Is this genuine? And what are you basing that on? Because if you're going, well, this past experience and this experience, what about the fruit in your life? Today. Today. That's what Hebrews is drawing. 
because there's a sobering truth in verse 6. And I think one of the most uh, intense, if you will, (laughs) to keep with that word, uh, passages in all of Scripture is found in Matthew 7. Many of you are familiar with it. If you're at the parks, you know. Um, Verses 22 through 23, where you stand before the Lord. And I think we have it. Do we have that, Jim? It's okay. Um, Where you stand before the Lord, this is verse 22. And you go, Lord, we prophesied in your name. Oh, we got it. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? That's a good thing, right? Yeah. Do we not cast out demons in your name and do mighty many works in, in, in your name, Jesus? And then I, Jesus, will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Notice he doesn't go, I knew you and you left me. What's the term there? I never. I never knew you. We did all these many mighty religious works in your name. I never knew you. That's a verse that keeps me awake. Especially as a pastor, as someone in vocational ministry, that's it. Lord, I want to know you. I I don't want to just have religious experiences. I don't want to just experience you. I want to know you with my whole heart. I want to lead people into a true knowledge, saving knowledge of who you are. I want to take you serious because eternity is serious. Discipleship is serious stuff. I don't want to play patty cake with sin. Because the sobering truth here in Hebrews verse 6 is this, that it's like you are crucifying Jesus again. Woo! If there's something I don't want to be guilty of, it's putting him back on the cross. You say, why would he, the writer of Hebrews, use that kind of language? Because here's what you're saying when you have all of these religious experiences without the true saving knowledge of Jesus in your life. You're going, Jesus is not worth it. That's why he's going, it's like you putting him back on the cross again. Why did people crucify Jesus, right? People crucified Jesus because they did not believe his claim. His claim to what? Be Lord. I'm the Savior. I'm the coming Messiah. You say, but it was God's servant. Yes, I get it. But why did ultimately people pin him to the tree? Because they thought he was blaspheming. He's not God. He's not the Savior. He's not the, he's not the Lord. He's not, he's not the Savior of the Jews. He's not the King of the Jews. Crucify him. It's when we experience all of these things, taste of the good word of God, yet it doesn't transform our lives. It's like us putting him back on the cross and going, Jesus, you're not worth it. Oh, I'll take you for some good experiences. I'll take you for some blessings. I'll take you for some therapy, but I won't take all of you. And then it ends this section, and I'll do that in the next 10 minutes. Um, with a very helpful illustration, I think. An illustration to drive this point home. It's very parable-esque because he talks about two fields in verses seven and eight. And we have to come to, to, to grips with this fact that there are only two groups of people. There are those who are redeemed by Christ and those who are not. 
there are two fields. And what's interesting about these fields, um, and I'll just pull out six things about these fields, and I will go quickly. I know I said six things. You're like, you said ten minutes. And first is this, that um, both fields um, belong to one owner. There's one owner of both this field that produces and this field that is full of thorns. Who's the owner, class? God is. He owns the righteous and the unrighteous. The wicked and the unwicked. The redeemed and unredeemed. It's all his. Why? Because ultimately, we're accountable to him. Both fields, same owner. Both fields received the same treatment. Look, look at it. This is, this is pretty interesting. Verse 7. And for the land that has drunk the rain that often falls... This isn't talking about people who have never heard the gospel, folks. This is talking about those folks who have heard the gospel over and over. This is talking about the people who are familiar with the church pews, okay? Like they know the system. They know those things. This is where the rain falls. When? Often. All the time the rain. The rain of the gospel is falling on these two fields. I love that they receive the same treatment. It's not like, hey, one's getting cultivated over here, like all the rain, and then we're looking at this one going, hey, the, how do you like that sun scorching you? No, the rain falls on both often. Both fields receive the same inspection, right? It's not a double standard. It's not one going, oh, well, I'm going to go over to this field and look for this, I'm going to go over to this. No, they come into the judge, the one owner comes into the fields looking for the same thing. And what is that? What is the judge looking for? How did the field respond to the rain? The gospel rain, the gospel saturation, the good word of God, the Holy Spirit moving among us. How did that field, how did that life respond? Did it respond? And here's where we move from both the fields having to the difference. There are different responses in each field. Now look with me really quickly. It says that the first field, it produces a crop. Now go to verse 8. It says, but the next field bears thorns and thistles. Every word produces, the two words here I want you to emphasize, produces and bears. The word bears, let's start with the negative one first. That word literally means this is what happens when you do nothing with it. The word bear means what comes naturally in this field. Thorns and thistles, not, not, not good crops, right? Not crops at all. So here, here's the idea here, church. If you want to see what your life produces and you do nothing to pursue Christ, to respond to the gospel rain that is falling over and over again in your life, let me tell you what happens. Your life will bear what it naturally does. Thorns and thistles. You say, but Kyle, I do a lot of good works. I do a lot of good things. You, you should see the charity account. Like, I, 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 do a, I give a lot. What does Isaiah say about our good works apart from the Lord? Right? They're filthy rags. Listen, if you do not respond to the gospel, that is what your life naturally bears. I don't care about your philanthropic resume. Apart from Christ, that's what your life bears. Now look at the next one, the word produces. I love this word produce because this is, this is the idea of what happens um, when you give birth, okay? Now, not to get into too much detail here, but 
um, you can't give birth, like you can't conceive of a child by yourself. True? Okay, no, don't answer it yet. No, you can't. All right, so there are kids in here. Takes two. It takes a response, and it takes the faithful reign of the gospel. And when someone responds with an open heart, with, an open, with, 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 with openness to receive the gospel of Jesus Christ, here's what happened. It produces fruit. It produces something. It produces, one might say, new life. Remember last week, Nicodemus? Jesus, what do I have to do? You have to be born again. The gospel reign has to be met with receptivity. And guess what produces? A new creation is born. New produce, new fruit is born in that field. And there's a difference in what's produced, meaning by each field, the fruit. You say, Kyle, you're talking a lot about fruit here. What is the fruit in the life of every believer that must be there? I'm only going to talk about three. First one is this, repentance. Repentance is found in the life of every true, genuine believer. Do you know what repentance is? It is a true and complete reorientation of your whole life. It's not just going, I'm sorry. Oh, I really screwed up. I'm sorry. No, that's confession. Repentance is this, recognizing who you are apart from Christ and reorienting your whole life around him. Why? Because he's king, he's Jesus, and he's good. It's reorienting everything. And listen, confession will flow from that place, you bet, because he's going to expose you. He's gonna, so what flows from me is things like Paul says, I'm the worst of sinners. My heart, it's wickedly deceived above all else apart from Jesus. Like, we never say, oh, I'd never fall into that sin. Like, as true believers, we'll never say that, right? Because there's no sin under the sun that I am exempt from. Nothing. That's prideful. That's arrogant. But what repentance does, it takes us and puts us under the lordship of Jesus Christ to say, listen, unless I fall completely on you, I am lost. I'm going to lead my life to nothing but destruction. Oh, Jesus, I need you. I need you. That's repentance. That's faith, the second fruit, faith, calling out. That's the cry of mercy. Jesus, please have mercy on me. And here's what I love about the word of God. That it says that God never rejects true repentance. A heart of anyone in this room this morning who will come and go, Lord, I have tried to save myself. I've got the religious resume. I've got all those things. I've got the experiences. But Lord Jesus, I need you like never before to reorient my heart and my life. That's a plea for mercy and salvation. And let me tell you what God does with that. He meets you right there. He anchors you. And the last fruit is this. So we have repentance, faith. And what flows out of that is now radical obedience. Radical obedience. Jesus, whatever you want, whatever you want with my life, whatever I need to do, whatever I need to give, however I need to live, I want to live in radical obedience to you. I want to rest in you. I want to trust you like never before with my money, with my time, with, with the gifts and talents and abilities, with my, my job and my family and my marriage. Lord, I'm trusting you with it. Wherever you call me, whatever you call from me and for me, Lord, I trust you with it. That's the soil of obedience. That's the soil the Lord is trying to cultivate in our church even this morning, this first day of Advent. 
And here's where he lands in verse 8. That there's a different conclusion in those two fields. There's a different verdict, if you will, in those fields. One is blessing, and the other, what does it say in verse 8? Is to be burned. One's blessing, and one's rejection. But let me end on a hopeful note here, backing up in verse 8. There's a word there. It's the word near. Did you see that? Look, put it up behind me, Jim. And near to being cursed. Near. It's like the author of Hebrews is pleading with this group. Oh, it's, you're near to being at that place of impossibility. You're close. But hear me. The gospel is still good news for you today. The gospel is good news. The rain of the gospel is falling down on your life today. Hear it. You're near, but you're not there. You're near, but you're not at the place of rejection yet. The gospel message is still going out to your ears and to your heart. The Lord is still running after you, even this morning, going, listen. I don't care how many times you've been in church. I don't care the religious experience you've had. Have you really trusted in Christ? Have you really repented and reoriented your whole life? Have you really cried out for mercy to Christ? Have you really walked your life of faithful obedience because of the salvation of Jesus Christ in your life? Not out of religious obligation, not out of duty, but out of joy and delight to go, there's nothing better. Let me tell you, there's nothing better than following King Jesus. There's nothing better than surrendering your agenda to him and going, Lord, not my will, yours be done. That's what it looks like. And oh, I don't know what near looks like, but this is just another one of those moments in your life and in my life where the gospel rain is falling again and going, listen, respond and don't delay. Make this light of the world, this first advent, not something of nostalgia and just familiarity but real in your life. It's a flame that burns within you, not outside of you. Let me pray for us. Father, I thank you for your word. Um, Your word that is true in life even in its hardest places. God, I'm thankful that you don't pull punches with my heart. I'm thankful that you don't water things down so that they're more palatable for me. Lord, but you are, God, you are jealous over your people. God, you desire that every man, woman, and child comes to a saving, a true saving knowledge of you and you'll do whatever it takes You'll use fallible instruments like me to deliver infallible messages like your word. And so, Lord, I pray that your word and your Holy Spirit might hit hearts this morning in a real way. God, I pray that there might be several collisions of grace with Jesus this morning. 
that it's not our good works, it's not our religious experiences, it's not our, 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 our spiritual resumes that save us. It is the finished work of Jesus Christ that saves us, that calls us to fall on him for mercy and grace in our time of need. It calls us to repent of our own self-saving efforts and fall on him. Oh Lord, I pray that we would enter into this Advent season with a different mentality. God, one that is serious about your son, Jesus. One that's not content and waiting in ankle high water, but wants to submerge our whole lives and our whole church into King Jesus. God, he alone is worthy of our lives. He alone is worthy of submitting everything to our pain, our brokenness, our success, our suffering. Lord, we submit it to him. And go, go, Lord, do what you may in it. So Lord, I pray that even as we've just gathered here in one unified service, that we would walk out of here a people with a renewed sense and confidence and assurance of the salvation we have because Jesus came into this world and died for us and rose victorious over sin, death, hell, and the grave for us. And so, Lord, I pray that we might live in light of his glory and his goodness. So, Father, I thank you for this church. God, I thank you for us, that you would allow us to be people who desire, at least in our hearts and our minds, to wade deeper into the things of you. So, Lord, protect us, keep us, hold us fast until the end. Let our lives bear the fruit, the evidence of your great salvation. It's in Jesus' beautiful name I pray. Amen and amen.